Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Our goal on each episode of Detroit Today is to have thoughtful conversations about the most important issues that affect us in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. But oftentimes, the topics and ideas expressed by the guests and you, the listeners, are so good, we on Detroit Today think they deserve another listen. That's why this hour, we're sharing one of our favorite conversations for you to enjoy. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. These days, a lot of the things that go viral are the really worst things you could imagine. They're the things that are outrageous, and most of it is at least related to our politics. There are videos and comments that make us mad at what other people are doing or saying. And sometimes they are just flat-out lies, misinformation that spreads from one social media platform to another, landing right in our feeds and, of course, creating a kind of circular dynamic where we respond or react to it and then it comes back to us. It's like a boomerang. This is so much of our daily reality right now on Twitter and Facebook We are often just yelling at each other. We're not even trying to convince other people. We're just demonstrating to people on our side that we agree with them and locking other people who don't agree out. Think of how often we hear people say, hey, I'm blocking that person or I'm unfriending that person. And they do it because they want everyone else to know that they did it. It's it's a badge of honor to say I'm not listening to this person anymore. I'm not interacting with this person anymore. That may feel good in the moment, but I think we got to stop and ask ourselves, what is that really doing? What is that getting us? And how does it benefit what I was just talking about, this communal sense of civic participation, of democratic participation, the idea that we are parts of a community, communities of interest, communities of culture, communities of all kinds of things. And this rancor on social media just tears at all of it. Sharon McMahon is somebody who is trying to do things really differently. She's a former high school government teacher turned Instagram star, and she digs into political and government-related questions on online workshops and on a podcast called Sharon Says So. She is extremely popular, but not for the reasons that I was just talking about. Sharon has amassed over 970,000 followers on Instagram because of the warm, open community she has created. On her online channels, people of different political beliefs come together to investigate certain topics, but also to better connect with Sharon. Her following is remarkable, and it leaves me with a couple of questions. 
How much of our persuadability is determined by those around us? What would a friendlier and more connected environment do to our really broken politics? In the news, of course, this is hard in the business that I'm in. We have to cover difficult and tragic things. But not everyone in America is a reporter. They can harvest and share more cheery content that's open by its nature. Sharon is proving that you can do that, but she's an outlier. And I wonder what kind of incentives we need to create more communities like the one that she has gotten off the ground. We have Sharon McMahon here with us to discuss her work and how she has created this open, empathetic political culture. Sharon McMahon, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. It's great to have you here. So what got you on this journey of trying to depolarize a significant chunk of the country and to unleash good information out into the Internet? And why do you think your work took so well, especially on Instagram? 970,000 followers. There's something counterintuitive about what you're doing being so popular at a time when some of the most popular content is the exact opposite of what you're doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're, you're so right that um, being polarizing pace, you know, like you have those uh, adages in the media where you're like, well, certain topics sell. If it bleeds, it leads. Or you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. that there are certain types of topics that pay. And there are a lot of people who are pundits, media personalities who make a lot of money um, being polarizing. That's a huge incentive for them. But I I got started mostly because I have a background in education. And when you're teaching in a high school classroom, your goal is to try to explain things in an accessible way that doesn't create that polarization. Can you imagine if a high school classroom was cable news? That would be that's that's a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I started in at the very tail end of September of 2020. Um, I had noticed a lot of misinformation about very basic government functions on social media. Um, I'm not talking about who you should vote for or which political party is preferable. I'm talking about like, here is actually how the Electoral College works. And I I watched viral videos that had huge misconceptions in them. Um, And I really reached this decision point where I could just continue doing what I was doing, which is nothing because i don't really believe in arguing with strangers online that's never done anything worthwhile in the history of humankind um or i could try to do something about it and so what i decided to do was just make some very simple nonpartisan, flat fact-based explainer videos and start posting them on instagram and i purposely made a point of when i was explaining these concepts i made a point of not using either presidential candidates' names. Uh, You know how people, when they hear Trump or they hear Biden, like they automatically have a visceral reaction to those names, usually in one direction or the Mm -hmm. other. And I knew that if I was going to use real candidate names, there was going to be a lot of, you know, subtext to explaining the Electoral College, because ultimately I was going to have to declare one of those candidates a winner in my in my explanation video. So I started just using little props, little silly names, just so people could 
could kind of sense that I had more um, benign educational intentions. I wasn't trying to convince them who to vote for. Hmm. And and uh, let's go back to this uh, this kind of pre period here when you were a. Uh, a government teacher in in high school. I, I think that's such a, a critical role right now, partially because, as you point out, there are lots of people walking around without uh, basic understandings of the way our government works or our history, but also because the premium that used to be placed on people learning that in school uh, is pretty greatly diminished. So I, I want to have you talk just a little bit about what it was like to be a government teacher in a high school in this in this era and and what made you decide to move on from it. Mm. Well, I had the good fortune of teaching in an amazing uh, school that really, in a, in a community that highly valued education. That's where I spent a lot of my years as a teacher. But I did spend most of the time there um, teaching students who were at significant risk. They were either either had chronic truancy or delinquency issues. So these are students who are typically pretty challenging to reach. They don't attend school regularly. Um, it tends, they tend to find graduation requirement subjects pretty boring. Um, and so I always had to find a way to make it interesting. I always had to find a way to try to uh, reach a group who often was very disinterested in what I had to teach them. So, you know, that is, it, it's such a challenging subject to teach right now. And I have a lot of teachers in my community, and I hear this from a lot of other teachers, and that they they fear that every word that they say uh, will be misinterpreted by somebody, that it will um, lead to some kind of potential consequences, that if they say, well, so-and-so won the popular vote, but not the but not the you know electoral college, that that is going to erupt into an argument. And so most of those ideas are uh, being learned outside of a 45-minute classroom session. Uh, but they are spilling over into the classroom. And that is, it's just an extraordinarily challenging political environment in which to operate right now for many teachers. Yeah. Ultimately, I, I left the classroom not because I didn't like teaching. I did. I loved it. I was very sad to leave the classroom. But I wanted to move back to my hometown in Minnesota. And they had recently laid off hundreds of teachers. And um, I knew that I was not going to find uh, a teaching job. I had too much education and experience. I cost too much money on the pay scale. Uh, they could hire a recent grad for a lot less than me. So ultimately, I left the classroom, but but now I'm teaching in a different, just in a different setting, hmm. different hmm. age group. Yeah, yeah. But we're talking with Sharon McMahon, a former high school government teacher who runs the Sharon Says So Instagram account that attempts to educate Americans on misinformation and spread nonpartisan information online. It is a real community of people who are maybe taking a step away from the really vituperative kinds of interactions and speech that we find so often on social media. How often uh, do we turn on the television or go to Facebook or Twitter or uh, some other platform and see people 
basically screaming at each other uh, about their political differences. Of course, uh, political opposition and and spirited political opposition has its place in our democracy. Uh, But we have lost in so many ways, I think, uh, the ability to actually have a conversation about uh, the things that bind us together, uh, the, the things that, that hold the republic together without shouting at each other. Sharon McMahon is creating that opportunity. Why do you think misinformation spreads so fast? Why do you think uh, partisan, extreme partisan dialogue is so important and popular on social media. Um, Talk about whether you've been a victim of either misinformation or uh, extreme partisanship that that seemed harmful. Um, Talk about whether you would like to be part of a community where we could talk more seriously, uh, more calmly about the things that uh, that all of us need to know and understand. I want to push back just a little on on the premise here, Sharon, and and talk about whether whether this is Pollyannish, right? Whether uh-huh. this idea that that people can or will, uh, you know, disabuse themselves of the habits that we are all, I think, forming pretty frequently on social media, whether people. Um, don't want uh, misinformation as long as it kind of reinforces the ideas that they that they already have. Uh, I think a lot of people look at this and say, "Ah, that's there's no point in in all of that. We're in a we're in a time and an era when uh, all of those negative influences, you know, have real real truck with people." Um, uh, what 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 do you say? What do you say in response to that? It's it's a very valid point. I am very much a realist. I, I don't have I don't see the world through rose colored glasses. As a student of history, as a student of government, I'm very well aware of what the world and this country have been through, and much of it has been things that I hope we never reproduce. We have engaged in many many things that uh, we need to talk about, and we have very real issues that we need to talk about. But in order to solve any of these problems, we also have to be able to take a step back and say, is what we're doing now working? Is what we're doing now having the desired outcome? And there's that phrase that the, you know, the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and hoping for different results. Most Americans are actually very fed up with the way Congress behaves. There's there's not one poll recently that shows that Americans are satisfied with the job Congress is doing. Most Americans have a very low opinion of Congress. And what that says to me is that the extraordinary partisanship and the sound bites and the viral videos uh, where they are just getting up and giving um, press conferences on the steps of this and stepping up to the microphone in the House chambers over here, where they are looking for a viral moment mm-hmm. so that they can fundraise off of that viral moment. They can include it in a fundraising email and say, help me fight back against whatever it is. Click here. Um, people fundraise millions of dollars off of those kinds of viral moments. And the the numbers do not lie. Americans are fed up. They're fed up with it. They're fed up with the inaction. They're fed up with nothing meaningful occurring. 
So I, I don't view this from the lens of like, you guys, we can all get along. We can all have sleepovers and braid each other's hair. Not at all. But I do know that what we're doing now doesn't work and something has to change in order to make meaningful progress, meaningful change in the United States. Mm. And that is going to require hard conversations. We can't have hard conversations when all we're doing is making fun of each other's appearance, when all we're doing is making fun of somebody's accent or calling somebody names. We can't have meaningful conversations based on that premise. So the premise has to be, let's talk about the real issues. And in order to do that, there has to be some kind of groundwork, some kind of rules about how we can have these meaningful conversations that isn't so reductive, that isn't so demeaning, that doesn't involve just devolving into partisan screaming. What we're doing now isn't working, and Americans agree with that. Hmm. Uh, Catherine on Twitter says, she says, I, I think it's really important to think about why these conversations are, quote, vituperative. There she's quoting me. Uh, I described them that way. Uh, she says there's an extreme injustice when one group consistently clings to lies and tries to break the system to get their way. I'm exhausted with this both sides uh, approach. Uh, No no question, uh, Sharon, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the ways in which uh, conservative activists and, and in, uh, you know, in in many ways, Republican office holders and and, uh, the, the, the party have gone to an extreme um, uh, extreme lengths to 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 break the dialogue uh, in this country. Um, January sixth of twenty twenty one, uh, maybe the, the 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 worst example of of that. You had thousands of people show up at uh, the U.S. Capitol to disrupt. Uh, the 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 peaceful transfer of power that uh, is up is at the heart of of our democracy. So so is it is it that um, is it that one side has devolved into this kind of uh, zero sum winner take all uh, break the system or win kind of uh, uh, approach, and that that you have to acknowledge that to even get to the place where you can talk calmly and civilly about uh, about any of these things. I mean, how how can you how can you ask people to come to the table uh, like this when you've got one side that is not just manufacturing lies and clinging to them but but spreading them um, in in incredible incredible ways that that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. You cannot have conversations in which one side um, believes gravity isn't real and the other side is wants to have a conversation about gravity. We all have to have our uh, – uh, we have to be rooted in facts. And that is one of the roles that I think I have on social media is – helping inoculate people against misinformation. And the best way I have found to inoculate people against misinformation is to give them real information. Um, I have not found it particularly useful to spend all of my time um, debunking people, other people's content. I could, that is, that's a game of whack-a-mole. 
right? That is, that will never end. I can never, ever put out all of the fires that will, that have occurred on social media. But what I can do is give you real information. What I can do is equip you with facts. And what we need are more people equipped with facts, even if they don't like the facts. One of the things that I often say is that facts don't require your approval. They, the, the bottom line is that the arbiter of facts is not, do I agree with it? Sometimes facts are very inconvenient. And the, the basis for a lie is not, well, I disagree, so it's a lie. We have to move past that standard, which I think is very often the standard on social media of, do I like it? Then it's true. Do I dislike it? Then it's a lie. That's not, that's not reality. We all have to accept that sometimes facts are inconvenient, sometimes we don't like the facts, and from that place is where we can move forward. Um, January 6th is a fantastic example of what the real-world consequences of an uninformed citizenry are. Mm. Very real, real world consequences. And certainly I'm not talking about all your listeners. I'm not talking about all Americans, not by a long shot. But when you have um, mis and disinformation that becomes so prevalent and sounds so plausible and aligns with somebody's already held beliefs so well, it takes root. It's almost like, you know, bamboo. You cannot, cannot get rid of it. So the best inoculation against that is knowing what's real, knowing the facts. You're not going to believe the Earth is flat if you're an astronaut. If I can, if I can help you know what's real, then we can move forward with a shared understanding of like, okay, I hate X, Y, Z policies, but I do understand that this that here are the facts surrounding the 2020 election. Yeah. We have to start with a shared understanding of the facts yeah. um, uh, and not spend time arguing about very yeah. We're going to continue this conversation with Sharon McMahon. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of our conversation right here on Detroit Today. Stay tuned. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Sharon McMahon. She's a former high school government teacher who runs the Sharon Says So Instagram account that attempts to educate Americans on misinformation and spread nonpartisan information online. It is also a community of people who are taking a step away from uh, the other parts of social media where we do see a lot of shouting and yelling at each other, uh, a lot of uh, dismissal of people on the other side of the political divide uh, who don't see eye to eye with us. Uh, What do you think of that approach? Do you think there's a difference between, for instance, arguing over policy positions and arguing over rights, uh, individual rights, which in in so many places uh, are absolutely uh, at stake in the arguments that we're having. I want to read a couple of the social media comments that that we're getting here. We're getting quite a a few. Ed says, sometimes I have to take a break from pounding my head against the wall, but 
I return. Now I'm trying to get people to understand the oil companies were overcharging at the pump. It is not all the president's fault. Uh, Big Neo says, I have a co-worker who is a true MAGA fan and believes every conspiracy theory that comes his way. Via Facebook, I mentioned that he needs to be open to other opinions and avoid echo chambers, or he might find himself at the next January 6th. He unfriended me. After that, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that happens a lot on social media, Uh of course. Uh, Let's go to the phones and start today with Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, Adrian. And there's a phrase that you used once before, Stephen. You said that, show me where I am wrong. And that's very important. When you're disagreeing with someone, you tell the other person, show me where I'm wrong. But it's it's kind of hard to argue with someone who really doesn't see the facts. Uh, And I heard your guest say that how do you tell someone the world is round, not unless you are an astronaut? Well, I remember over 50 years ago, they believed that that we never went to space, that that was all a setup on a stage somewhere. So I guess my question Adrian, I think we lost you there. Go ahead. Okay, I'm going to remove my personal um, opinion away from a, a conversation and not cut the hearing off when I'm discussing with someone something very important. And I'm, I'm driving, so I keep going in and out. <laughs> but I just need to know, how do I remove myself, my personal opinion, so that I can educate someone about something that is, I believe is of vital importance to them? Yeah. Uh, Adrian, I, I, I love the question and, and thanks for, for calling in with it. You know, one of the things, Sharon, that, that strikes me is this is something that that has practical limitations. And, and one of them is that there are some people, as you point out, who thrive off of misinformation and whose uh-huh. whose goal is to disrupt uh, disrupt uh-huh. uh, either the democratic process, uh, disrupt the the recognition of somebody else's rights through that misinformation. And so, like as Adrian points out, you know, how do you how do you remove enough of yourself, I guess, from uh, from the from the from the conversation to be able to even countenance somebody who is is saying something they know to be untrue. Uh, and, and because they have a motive uh, to, to to do so. That is how we got to January 6th, uh, uh-huh. for instance, uh, and it's how lots of other things have happened. So so what's the, I guess, what's the answer there? Mm. That's a great question, Adrian. So one of the things you have to ask yourself, first of all, is the person you're talking to, are they having a, are they interested in having a good faith conversation with you? Some people really aren't. Some people are not interested in having a good faith conversation or a good faith discussion about the facts. Some people truly, their goal is to just disrupt and create viral moments on, online. Um, and that might not be the best use of your time. Only you can decide what the best use of your time is. But if that is their goal, it might not be the best use of your time. What I like to say when somebody is, you know, uh, getting very heated, uh, spewing a lot of misinformation at me, which often happens in my DMs, is I will just straight up ask them, are you interested in having a, a discussion, a, a, you know, a good faith discussion about the facts? And 
almost always they will tip their hand immediately. If they respond back with um, a bunch more, well, you always say X, Y, and Z, or this person, ABC, that's, that's a clear indication that they're not actually interested in that conversation, and you should apply your efforts somewhere else. But if somebody's like, yeah, I actually am, I'd like to hear what you have to say. One of the ways that you can remove your personal um, opinion and, and talk only about, you know, fact-based information um, is to make sure, first of all, that you are not attacking the other person that you are having a conversation with. In order, to, um, in order for somebody to be open to what you have to say, first, they have to feel as though there is a level of respect between you. Um, if somebody's screaming you at on a street corner, there's no respect between the two of you, and they're not going to listen to your thoughtful points. They're only going to be listening to respond to scream back at you more. So they have to feel that there is in order there's a level of respect between you, even if you don't respect their opinions, that you respect them as a human. This is not going to devolve into name calling. That's the first sort of guideline that I give people. And then the next one is instead of launching into an attack of every single one of their points, pick one thing that you want to talk about and say, ask them a question about it from the position of curiosity so you can better understand their position, not so that you can come to agree with it, not so that you can uh, give legitimacy to their position, but so that you can understand who you're talking to mm -hmm. and why they believe what they believe. That is tremendously useful information. Misunderstanding somebody else's intentions and positions means that your arguments will be much less strong. So you have to, a, a, a common question I would like to ask somebody is, I would love to hear more about how you arrived right. at the why decision. Why do you think that? That's right. Yeah. Even saying why, though, sometimes why seems attacking. Sometimes when you say, well, why do you think that? Even if you say it's super friendly, um, the word why seems attacking to people. So I like to invite them to share with me how they arrived at mm -hmm. that decision. Again, uh, Adrian, really, really great question, and uh, I, I really am glad that you called and uh, injected it into the conversation here. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, you know, this is an interesting topic, and it's, it's not really new. And I think as a teacher, it's great, you know, the way you're trying to reach out to people, especially students, because basically it's about education. But, um, you know, when we're looking at the big lie and we're saying – all of the court cases that said that they're, you know, the election was fair, and yet it's still going on. We're still having January 6th hearings, and there's still people that will never believe it. We have, I got to say it, we have a minority extremist conservative control of our country, and they've been installed by the Supreme Court a few times. And, you know, the Electoral College is a big part of the problem. Gerrymandering is a big part of the problem. But right now we have the Supreme Court considering whether or not they want to throw these decisions back to the state legislatures instead of the courts mm -hmm. that, that ruled correctly. And that's a huge problem. So I'm my I, I want to hear your, um, you know, um, thoughts on this whole thing and people losing faith in the whole system, especially the court system. But basically what I want to say is that my only hope is that the, the redistricting, um, you know, getting rid of gerrymandering, maybe getting rid of the Electoral College is our only salvation because democracy itself is at, is at stake here. And 
it's not like both sides are right. One side will not accept that there is a big lie, and there mm-hmm. has been for four years. And before the four years, the whole campaign before that was based on lies that, oh, this is how the president says he's going to be, but he's not really going to be that way. And it's like, no, none of that was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert, uh, you're, you're absolutely right about uh, the, the, the structures the, uh, of our government and what they are producing in terms of outcomes right now. Um, uh, I'm glad you called and, and, and mentioned that. Sharon, you were a, a government teacher in, in high school. You know this stuff uh, better than probably most of the people who uh, are listening to the program. Um, it does it does seem like the minority provisions that were put into our laws and our constitution uh, from the beginning, which were supposed to protect those minority interests from majoritarian rule, uh, are being exploited right now uh, to impose a minority rule that I think none of the founders uh, would recognize as as a preferred outcome of the system they designed. In other words, uh, they would be as shocked as anyone else to to know that uh, of the last uh, four um, uh, Republican presidents, uh, uh, you know, most have not won the popular vote. Right, uh, the Republican Party has lost the popular vote in in seven of the eight la- last presidential uh, elections, and yet you've had two presidents uh, serve uh, because of that. So, so. Is there something about that um, that that calls us to a different state of of alarm and 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 concern about the system? I mean, as a government teacher, what would you tell students about what's happening right now? Mm, that's a great question, Robert, and thank you so much. Democracy is absolutely in peril. There's no question about it. There's no question that democracy is in peril. And I mentioned earlier, I do not see the world through rose-colored glasses of we should all just get along and pretend everything is great. Um, But we cannot save democracy without understanding how the system works. In order to change anything, you have to understand how that thing functions. And right now, again, we're seeing the results of people who, the results of people who, who did not understand it and then whose understanding of it was exploited and then what happens with when we're talking about things like the big lie, that it is very, very difficult to admit I was wrong. It's very difficult to admit that somebody lied to you, somebody that you really care about, that you really feel strongly attached to. It's difficult to admit that that person lied to you. And so we have to understand, first of all, not, I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying, like, we should just ignore it. We shouldn't. But you have to understand the psychology involved in somebody who has spent many years involved in the big lie. This is part of their identity. And so in order to move on, they have to be willing to sacrifice that portion of their identity. And that is a very difficult thing for some people to do, especially when they're not interested in in, um, sacrificing that part of their identity. They believe strongly this is the right and just place for me to be. So, So, yeah, go go ahead. Go ahead and finish. I was just going to say that we have to, first of all, understand that, that we're asking some people to abandon their identity. And that is not an easy ask for some people. It's a big ask. Um, And we're not going to get there by uh, name calling, screaming at people, belittling their humanity. To some people, these beliefs 
are as deeply held as religious beliefs. And if you are a church-going person or you attend a synagogue and your or whatever your faith is, if your faith is deeply, deeply important to you, and I arrive on your doorstep and start screaming at you about how stupid your faith is and how could you believe such a lie, there's no God, blah, 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 we've, there's no evidence for it, you would not immediately abandon that position and be like, you know what, I've considered the facts and you're right. I'm abandoning my religious faith because you've convinced me. Mm. That is that to some people who believe the big lie, that is how deeply held these beliefs are. And they are not going to abandon them because we scream at them about them. So, so, but part of the, part of the question here is whether we ought to change some of the systems, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. these people who believe the big lie, they are the minority. And in, in some cases, uh, they're winning uh, in in a democracy where they should where they should lose. Should should we be thinking about uh, the way that the electoral college plays a role in that? Should we be thinking about the way that uh, the the design of the Senate plays a role in that, or the gerrymandering that happens in the House? I mean, should we be thinking about a, a wholesale reform of our democratic institutions? Mm. I absolutely think that many of our institutions are not functioning the way the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution intended. And if that is the goal of Americans, some Americans don't have the goal of we should have a system that works as the framers intended. Some Americans are like, listen, they lived hundreds of years ago. Many of them were slave owners. Why should I care what they have to say? That's the position of many Americans, and I certainly understand understand that position. Other Americans feel like the system should work as the framers intended. They had a lot of wisdom. Um, they got us out of this sort of oppressive regime of being forced under this religious autocracy that was present in Europe. Um, But if that is your belief, it's your belief that we should have a country that functions as the framers intended, we do not have that right now. Mm. We do not have a system that functions as intended. Uh, There was no concept of partisan, uh, the extraordinary extent of partisan gerrymandering when the Constitution was written, when this country was founded. Certainly some gerrymandering has existed throughout all time, but never to the extent that it is now. And the reason we are able to gerrymander districts so incredibly well right now is because of technology. Right. That didn't exist even 50 years ago. Right. Yeah, that's right. Technology makes it extremely efficient to gerrymander political districts. The framers had no concept of that, no concept of technology that would allow us to geolocate where a Democrat lives via their phone. So... I absolutely think we are in a position of needing to rethink how our system is functioning, because if we wanted to have the outcome, the outcome that it did in the past, it no longer does because of other advancements in the world. Yeah, um, we, we absolutely must look at redesigning some of our systems. No yeah, question. Yeah. Okay. We need to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, 
Thanks so much for tuning in. Our guest right now is Sharon McMahon, a former high school government teacher who runs the Sharon Says So Instagram account that attempts to educate Americans on misinformation and spread nonpartisan information online. Uh, we're talking about how we talk to each other a little better than we do on social media, how we hew a little closer to fact and truth than to lies and misinformation, something that has uh, been a real problem in the last four or five years, especially as one side of the political spectrum really has embraced the idea of lying and using those lies to uh, to get the outcomes that uh, that they want. As always, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go next to Layla in Detroit. Layla, what's on your mind? Uh, yeah, hi. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, I just wanted to, um, uh, I don't know, raise a point, I guess, mm-hmm. about facts. Um, if, this conversation is reminding me of the investigation that the Michigan um, legislature or committee engaged in after the 2020 election. And there were a couple of people that came in to um, basically witness uh, fraud that was or whatever uh, bad actors mm-hmm. during the election in, in Detroit. And what they were presenting was facts about what their observations were. Um, but the disagreement that ensued afterwards was the conclusions that one could draw from, from those, those facts. facts. Yeah. yeah. And so I wonder what your uh, what your um, no, uh, have to say about that. Yeah. Because great we, question. Uh, Layla, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you called and, and, and asked that. Sharon, how, how do you answer that? Thanks so much, Layla. So one of the things that we ha- that this is what we have to be able to have a conversation about, right? We have to be able to have a conversation about what kind of conclusions one can draw from facts. That is a legitimate conversation to have. Um, but what's what's what delegitimizes those important conversations is a disagreement about what facts are. Right. And that's what I'm hearing a lot of your guests saying too, is that like what we nobody agrees on facts. We can draw different conclusions based on facts, but we cannot have our own facts. We can have our own opinions, we cannot have our own facts. So that is that's where legitimate democratic discourse comes into play. Those are the real conversations that we need to be having is what kind of conclusions can we draw based on here's what we saw happen. Um, and then perhaps other people have more facts to add to that conversation, or perhaps somebody else is able to lend context to something else that perhaps we hadn't thought of before. But those kind of discussions cannot happen if we are not able to come to the table with a set of facts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Layla, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to John on the east side. John, I've only got uh, a minute and a half left, but go ahead. Well, you know, I, I, as I finish up reading 1619 Project, mm-hmm. I'm coming to the conclusions that the whole system was set up along the way to, for enslaving people and creating power. And I guess my question is, without blowing the system up and re- recreating the entire system, even if we got 80% of the people out to vote, 
would that fix our politicians? Mm. Mm. Great question, John. And and uh-huh. uh, you know the, the the reference to the 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 roots of all of this in the in the country's founding, I think, are really important. And we're starting to to kind of reckon with some of that. But uh, Sharon, I've got about a minute left. Go go ahead and answer John's question. Mm, that's a fantastic question. Here is the very very fast answer: the vast majority of federal politicians in this country are elected in the primary level. Uh, so many districts are gerrymandered right now that you know that somebody of a certain party is going to win. Mm-hmm. And so in order to change the system, we must start caring deeply about primary elections. If we want better candidates, we have to care about primary elections. If we care about redistricting, we have to care about primary elections. Most of those primary elections are decided by fewer than three thousand votes in the majority of house districts in the united states fewer than three thousand people stand between the status quo and political change and so it is not just about turnout on election day in november it is caring about the system more deeply earlier than we are currently doing it right now and the answer to your question is what if we had 80 percent voter turnout would that create Massive amounts of political change, especially the primary level, 1,000% it would. 1,000%. Right now, a tiny number of people voting in primary elections who tend to be more politically extreme than the mainstream are deciding who is in office. They're deciding for everyone. They're deciding for everyone. We have to start hearing sooner and more. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island for the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference. Gretchen Whitmer is the governor of the state of Michigan, the newly reelected governor of the state of Michigan. Uh, governor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you. Yeah, I, I don't think I've talked to you since uh, since the election. <laughs> Last year, how was that possible? <laughs> I know. That's a little odd. Um, it is good to see you. Um, same question I put to everybody up here. Uh, tell me what your goal is for the week. What's on your agenda up here? Lots of people always come to me and say, "What do they actually do up there? What actually happens?" So I always try to get people to explain. Uh, you know, there's a lot that that uh, people have planned. There are a lot of goals that people have. Uh, what are yours? Well, my goal is to enlist everyone here to be a part of Team Michigan. As we are thinking about our challenges as a state, there are a lot of great things happening. And people are feeling pretty optimistic. As you know, the Shuba poll earlier this week showed, people are optimistic, but yeah. we're also sober about that there are some ongoing challenges for us. We've made some great strides. But my focus um, today on the main stage is going to be talking about strategic population growth. We know that our population did increase in the last census, but it was at a much you know, slower clip than other states. 49th out of 50. Yep, we lost a congressional seat, and you know, we've got a, a powerful story to tell. There are a lot of great reasons that people are coming to Michigan. We've got to tell that story, and we've got to make sure that every person in Michigan and who's looking at Michigan sees a real path to prosperity here. And so today I'll be talking about strategic population growth, what it would mean for a long-term infrastructure, 
um, need and plan as well as uh, improving outcomes for kids in our ed- education system. Yeah. So uh, since the election last year and the, uh, the change in control in the legislature, you, you guys have been really busy in Lansing. You've gotten a lot of things done, a lot of things that Democrats have wanted to do for, for many years and haven't had the numbers uh, to do. I, I, I just want to get you to recap what you think are the highlights of this first five months of, of the new term and why the things that you're doing will actually matter to Michiganders. Mm-hmm. Well, first, let me start with I'm grateful to have some wonderful partners in the legislature. Speaker Joe Tate, a Detroiter, um, has been just an incredible leader. Senator Winnie Brinks, the Senate Majority Leader, um, has been as well. And so I'm really pleased to be able to say that in the first 100 days, we delivered a billion-dollar tax break. So that is help for working families, people that are, are working but can't get ahead. And we got rid of the retirement tax. So that's relief for seniors. We expanded our Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act to encompass the LGBTQ plus community. We got rid of the 1931 law that told women what to do with their bodies and made no exceptions. We expanded workers' ability to collectively bargain. We've ensured that... Um, Michigan has some common sense gun laws on the books. So we've gotten an incredible amount done. There's a lot more good work yet to do, but I'm, I'm proud of laying that, that framework because that's how we ensure that Michigan is a place where every person can see a future for themselves. Yeah. So uh, back to population. Um, we've been talking about population and the need to lose fewer people and attract more people to Michigan for a, a really long time. And it's been a constant theme up here. Uh, on on Mackinac, we we also in the background of that conversation, I think, always talk about an investment agenda that I think is really key to to, to pulling those levels levers. Um, but we never get to that that investment agenda. It feels like, and that's why we keep slipping behind. So, what do you think we need to do differently, and what do you plan to do differently to actually get that going? Yeah, I'm so grateful for the question. So there's. I think we've got a real opportunity here. And and a lot of folks have talked about population growth, but it's difficult when you've got to change an administration every four to eight years, eight, pretty much eight years, the yeah. last few decades. And that's why the, the council that I'm going to be announcing today, co-chaired by a pretty prominent Republican and a pretty prominent Democrat, um, will help pull in not just business leaders, but labor leaders, as well as academic leaders and elected leaders, to ensure that we have a strategy that transcends my time as governor. We won't have fixed this in three and a half years, but this is going to lay the groundwork so that whomever comes after me can continue moving our state forward. We can't do this seesaw where we just focus on it for a couple years and then we get a new person there. We've got to have something that transcends, and that's why it shouldn't be led by me or any one person or any political party for that matter. This is a Team Michigan moment, and that's why I'm creating this council to put the work together. By December, we'll have a plan, and then we're going to be executing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got you here. I got to ask the question. Uh, your name comes up an awful lot in national politics uh, these days. I see you on, on uh, the cable news channels and lots of people writing about you and your future. Any interest in uh, the national elections that will take place next year? I think you should do what I do, and I ignore all that and stay focused on my job here in Michigan. Yeah, this is the only place I want to be, isn't it? I mean, there's an awful lot of buzz. It about is. It. I keep trying to tamp it down, but you know, the fact is, I am absolutely 100 percent focused on Michigan. I've got three and a half years to continue this work, and 
um, there's a lot, a lot to do. Yeah. All right. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, always great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Stephen. That is going to do it for us on Detroit Today. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can always find it online at WDET.org, or you can check out the podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching for Detroit Today. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend to check us out while you're there. It's a great way to help keep the conversation going. We'll see you next time on Detroit Today, right here on 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next time.